0: I think um, I'm going to start with a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, And sometimes Thich Nhat Hanh has some
1: serious quotes.
0: This
2: is one of those serious quotes.
0: He says, your peace is more important than driving yourself crazy trying to understand why something happened the way it did. Your peace is more important than what we're doing, driving ourselves crazy, trying to
2: understand why something happened the way it did. But what he's saying is, what we do is drive ourselves crazy trying to
0: figure out why something happened, not focusing on our piece. That's what I want to talk about. So we're we we are starting, to, for those of you that are new, each year, Seattle Insight, we pick a theme for the year of what we're going to talk about. And this year, we are talking about uh, what you could consider the threes, is what Tim and I called it. In Buddhism, in this practice, Dhamma, there's a lot of lists. And the list we picked were the list of threes. And there's lots of threes, but we only picked four of them. And so each quarter, we're going to go through a set of threes. And we are going through what are called the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And so last last time we were together a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, taking refuge in general. We we always take refuge in something, but rarely do we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And so we were looking at these refuges that we, uh, these things that we take refuge in, meaning that what we do when we get stressed out, this kind of searching around, trying to find out why something happened, rather than our peace. And then the peace would be where the Buddha Dhamma Sangha lies. And in the running around trying to figure out why this happened, driving ourselves crazy are the superficial refuges that we take all the time. So last last time we were together, we were kind of talking about why is that and how is it that that comes into being? And I used the Buddha's life. Uh, as a, as a way to begin to see how natural this is, meaning that the Buddha said he lived a very refined life, very refined, lots of enjoyment, ease, and protection. And yet he was, he could see how himself and his uh, the people around him were all consumed, intoxicated with youth and health and life. And that intoxication to stay young and beautiful, to have good health and always be vibrant and never get sick and, and just this uh, long life, that that intoxication in and of itself Causes us to put our faith in all kinds of magic potions and all kinds of, um, um, I guess you could say, wizardry. Anything that will convince us that there is a way for me to extend my life. Anything that will convince me that I can avoid old age. Or anything that will keep me from being sick. That kind of intoxication creates, I mean, this is where most of our refuges come from. That's what we run to straight away when we get stressed out. But I want to talk tonight about the difference between those kinds of refuges. And we are probably not going to get rid of them. So it can't be a conversation about, uh, uh like I was saying that one of my refuges is TV. So if I get stressed out, I'm turning the TV on and I'm going to sit there for a while. <laughs> or, or if I really like the show, you can actually say something to me and I won't even hear you because I'm too into that TV show. So there's a way in which these refuges, we are not going to necessarily get rid of them. There's not even a need to get rid of them. But taking refuge in something that has limitations in order to find peace, therein lies our problem. There is a way that we can find peace and still keep these random refuges that we uh, that are much more insignificant and and uh, unreliable. But I want to talk about why taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a completely different type of refuge and why it is um why it's so beneficial so you can see the limitations with the other one so i'm not going to read last week i read three sutras that's pretty much what we talked about last week was um uh how we get trapped but i read three sutras because they all have different um they have different uh, translations. It's one of the few suttas that has, you can just get readily three different translations. And I'm going to read the second part of it. I'm just going to read one of them and read the second part of it. So you can begin to see what it is that I want to point to of what the Buddha Dhamma Sangha does. So, um, This is what the Buddha said about his world, if you remember. He said, fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. This is the Buddha talking about his world. He's shaking all over. He's scared. I mean, he's scared. I'm just saying. Got to check that for a moment. So fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. And I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water, too shallow. So hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed. To find a place. Uh, I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. Does that not sound like our own world? Does that not sound like that? I mean, sometimes I really think we act as if the Buddha's world was so much better than ours, that somehow our world right now is so bad. And no other world was this bad. I think it's pretty much been bad ever since we got on the planet. I don't think it's somehow worse now than it was before. I think we've been busting up each other's heads, killing each other, causing all kinds of mayhem and destruction for as long as we've been around. I think it's part of the human condition. So even the Buddha's pointing to how much people in his world fought with each other, argued, complained, pushed with greed and hatred for the limited resources that were around trying to get their own and he even tried to find carve out some little spot for him just can i just have my own little spot here i'm not gonna bother anybody else and he couldn't even find that and there was no foundational kind of uh place for him and even in Buddha's time, it's not like there were not great sages all over the place. There was not, like there wasn't great uh, spiritual wisdom that was all over the place. That is the nature of the world he lived in also. All these people that were uh, on spiritual quest and trying to find enlightenment and liberation,
2: transcendent from all the difficulty. But still, the world itself
0: was locked in conflict. The way our world is locked in conflict. Locked in conflict about whose view is right, who's wrong. Which way do we go? What do we do? This way is better than in that way. And we are stuck in the same conflict. But, he says, then I discerned here a thorn hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So that if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down.
2: I will hear what, um,
0: this is uh, Andrew Solinsky, Olinsky that did this. Uh, This is uh, Thomas Arubico. He says, same part, Um, And then I saw an arrow here, so very hard to see, embedded in the heart. Overcome by this arrow, you run in all
2: directions. But simply on pulling it out, you don't run and you don't sink. The reason why I
0: think the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which I'm going to talk about tonight, is so important, is so much more um,
2: why we need to put take some refuge in this um, is
0: because it, to begin with, if you begin to recognize that our world is as volatile as Buddha's world, then you are going to have to stop looking for some kind of peace or uh ease out there some some kind of fixing it out can't come from out there because out there is too volatile it's too conflictive we don't we won't know exactly what is the right way it depends on i mean this is probably. The worst time in the world because I hate to say it, but it depends on who you listen to for your news to decide how you believe. We are so we have so much information that we have access to, but everyone in this room probably listens to a different news source. We probably have some, you know, like in a Venn diagram, we have some overlap. But then you go off over here and I go off over there. And then that's what we're believing is true. And everybody thinks their sources are telling them the truth. Everyone thinks um,
2: what they're hearing is true. What they're learning is true. I remember one time seeing this
0: report. I think it was like a 60-minute report. I don't know if you guys remember the Power Rangers. If you didn't have kids, you may not really have. It was one of the stupidest shows I've ever seen. But, you know, kids, I don't know why. They loved it. They loved
2: it. And it was people dressed up like these, you know, like uh,
0: superheroes, but not with the big muscles and all that, just different colored clothes. And they would do these karate chops that were like fake. I mean, it was it's unbelievable. But kids loved this show. And so there just became this huge ruckus about how terrible the show was because kids would be the Power Rangers as soon as they would go out for recess. And so the, 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 the news people wanted to question whether or not this was a good show or a bad show. And they played the show for these various kids in elementary school. And as soon as the episode was over, they go to recess. And they were out there in recess. Everybody's doing their karate chops and they're fighting and they go back in. And this is going to be proof that this is a terrible show. So they go to the kids and they're talking to the kids about you know you're going outside fighting and this one kid said what do you mean we're going outside fighting he goes you're doing the fights from the show I go, but we're not fighting we don't touch each other <laughs> he was looking at him like you're so stupid it's pretend it's not real we're just like moving, but we don't touch each other. <laughs> you know, he said, but I mean, you look at the show and then you go outside and do it. So he looks at this man, almost like to pat him on the head and say, you should think of it as we are practicing. That's it. We're just practicing. We are not fighting. So the 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 news tried in
2: all these different ways to talk to these kids about you're you you you're
0: copying this power rangers and all the kids said the same thing this is not real like they were helping these adults understand this is not real this is imagination it was unbelievable And in some respects, we have to almost convince ourselves or teach ourselves, it's not real everything that we see on the news, everything we read. It's not real in this way. And beginning to see what is reality is a very, very difficult thing. It is very, very difficult. It is the thorn that's inside, it's embedded in our hearts. This thorn you could think of is like a, a nail that keeps us from knowing the truth. It's like a covering of delusion. And so what we have to do is pull out this thorn that's lodged in our hearts and begin to see the truth of what's going on. This is not easy to do. When the Buddha, when he uh, got uh, uh, awakened, he um, he took a moment to kind of bask in his awakeness, whatever that, feels like or whatever that's like and then at some point he decided he was gonna go find his friends because when the buddha before his awakening um he was dying basically doing a ascetic practice and he was dying it wasn't working and then he had a moment of peace tranquility and stillness and he wanted to Investigate that stillness, that tranquility. Like, what is that? How come that's here? And um, he had to eat in order to get his strength back. And of course, the five other practitioners that were practicing together with him, they were like a little uh, sangha, they got so mad at the Buddha for eating that they left him. Like, he couldn't cut it. So they all left. And when the Buddha got awakened, he decided. I'm going to go tell my friends about this. And his first sermon, they say, he walked some 200 miles until he found them just to tell them about what he had uncovered and what he had learned. And when they first heard him, they didn't believe a word he was saying. They were like, yeah, okay, whatever. And he had to keep telling them, have I ever led you stray? Listen to me what I'm saying. They even recognized that he looked different and he sound different, but they wouldn't get past their thought that he had punked out because he went and took something to eat. Couldn't possibly, it couldn't have possibly worked for him. He didn't do it the right way. And he had to several times get them to understand what he was trying to tell them. Basically what he was trying to tell them was the three characteristics, which we're going to talk about. I think it's next quarter and the four noble truths. So basically what he was trying to say is that there is a natural phenomena that's happening in the world that we cannot prevent. We cannot stop it. We cannot change it. We cannot, we do not have any power to prevent its inevitability. And that all of our pain is not coming from that inevitability. It's coming from our foolish thinking That we can somehow prevent it. That we can somehow or another interrupt that flow. That we can create a world where we won't be stressed out. And he realized that that is not possible. And that true peace came when you pulled out this thorn of resistance to reality. When you pulled it out and you stopped resisting. What is as it is. This is what I think Thich Nhat Hanh is pointing to. That if we begin to take our peace, begin to see that the peace is more important than trying to figure out why this thing has happened to me. Then we could completely upend our lives and change the way our lives progressed. So this is what I want to point to I think the Buddha dhamma sangha this uh this that what's called the triple jewel the three refuges this is the um, trifecta the 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 triangle that's strong enough to allow us to pull out the storm that's what I think it is I do not think it is some religious dogma. It's not religious. In some respects, Buddha was more of a scientist than he was some religious sage. It's not dogma. It is, I hope, by the end of this talk, you can see that it is necessary. Not dogma but that it is necessary that we figure out how to pull out this thorn. So first, the Buddha. You could think of it as the Buddha as a person, regular guy, just like you and me trying to figure something out. He did have one thing that I don't have or many of us don't have. He had a nonstoppable, un- unshakable intention to awaken he it was unshakable his desire to understand what the hell was going on with all this suffering in this human birth it was unshakable when he left home he went to teachers that were you know great teachers and they taught him all kinds of deep samadhi states And he was so good at it that the teachers would say, you stay with us. You and I, we can get lots of students, make lots of money. You come on and stay with us. You can do it. But the Buddha would not. He wouldn't stay. And he didn't stay for one reason. Because if he stayed, it would interrupt his ability to find liberation. Because no matter how concentrated and free his mind got, he would eventually have to eat something, go pee, defecate, do something, get some sleep. He could not stay in these states of mind. No matter how blissful they were, they were temporary and they would not stay. And he was no closer to understanding what was beyond suffering than he was when he left home. So he wouldn't stay. That's when he found his friends. He started the J, started following the Jane's practice and very, very aesthetic practices and very harsh to the body. And you're supposed to transcend pain. So the more pain you got, the better it is. And the more pain he got, supposedly the better he was. But he wasn't. He was just dying. That's it. He didn't transcend it. So in the midst of his dying, and he came across this thought that seemed like, how could he be so still? He just had this thought of being a kid, and there was all this stuff going on at at uh, some big festival they were having, and there was all this stuff going on, but he was still, pristine still. Not blissful still, fully aware of what was going on, and yet he was still. And he wanted to understand, now wait a minute, that seems like you've transcended suffering, is you're in the midst of reality, and yet you're still. So he wanted to learn that, and he thought to himself, there's a famous quote that he said, Might there be another way? And that thought is what carried him off to get something to eat. And he ate and kind of left. His friends all left him. And now he's on his own trying to practice something he doesn't even know. Now, that's a little bit outside of what I would consider just like me. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I am pretty demoted. I'm demoted. There's no question about that, but I wouldn't say that I got that kind of devotion. So there's another way, Ajahn Sumedho, when he was here last year, he said you could consider the Buddha mindfulness. And I did a lot of looking into that, what that could mean. And I really believe that that is a better way to think of Buddha as mindfulness. So, when you're practicing mindfulness, you're like bringing the Buddha within us. It's like connecting to the Buddha within. Because what Buddha saw was this capacity of the mind to be mindful, meaning the capacity of the mind to pay attention to something, anything, that we could aim our attention at something and sustain it there. That's it. That's all he noticed was aiming his attention and sustaining it. And when you aim and sustain your attention on something and you keep aiming and sustaining your attention on something and the mind wanders off here and you bring it back and you aim and sustain your attention on something over and over and over, not in this fighting kind of clenched down tension way, but just like you can notice the noise, the sound of traffic here because it's already happening. Your ears notice it whether you do or not. So we could aim and sustain our attention on that sound and stay with it. He realized you could aim and sustain your attention because the mind inherently is mindful. And that the mind takes refuge. It finds protection in mindfulness. That actually, the more we learn to aim and sustain our attention, it's like disciplining a child within the constraints of not running out in the middle of the street. They're just going to run out in the middle of the street. We have to tell them like 9,000 times, check both ways. Check both ways, check both ways. But they will still run out in the middle of the street. But look at us. We check both ways before we walk across the street. That You got to thank your mom and daddy for that because they had to tell you about 9,000 times before you got that. We use mindfulness to the point where now we remember things we remember how to tie our shoes we it, it wasn't always that simple so this mindfulness is this capacity to use mindfulness to stay in the present moment and if you're in the present moment you can begin to see reality we cannot see reality if we're in the past or we're in the future so buddha as mindfulness is this capacity to stay in the present moment
2: with whatever is arising. That's one piece of it. There is the Dhamma. And the Dhamma, a way that you could
0: think about it is recognition. There's all these things in Dhamma that we're going to talk about this year, that we've talked about over the years. There is just so much Dhamma, so many ways that Dhamma is brought up. And mostly it's because everybody would come to the Buddha and say, okay, give it to me quick. Just tell me the quick and dirty. I mean, he would give long Dhamma talks and someone would say, can you just give it to me quick? And so... For different people, he would say it different ways. For Bahia, he said, okay, Bahia, just pay attention to hearing as hearing, seeing as seeing, tasting as tasting. For someone else, he said, for some deva that came to him one late night time trying to find
2: out, what do I do with this dharma? He said, "Um, don't push and don't stand still.
0: He told all kinds of people, different ways. What he never did was explain what the Dhamma is. What he would say is,
2: well, if you had someone that was struck by an arrow, they would feel it painfully. And if they're
0: just one of a male person, they wouldn't notice that it is impermanent and it is subject to change, and it's not personal, they would notice that. So they would be elated when it's pleasurable, and they would be uh, dejected if it was unpleasant. But if you had someone who was well-trained, they got struck by an arrow, they would know. This is impermanent, subject to change, and uh, not personal. So they would not be elated
2: by the pleasure and they wouldn't be dejected by the unpleasant. Seems simple. Uh, Okay.
0: What does that have to do with what the Dhamma is? They would, he would say again, he would tell people, well, if you had this, you would feel like this. If you have that, you would feel like this. He talked about the absence of things and the presence of things. And what he did was he, all he ever did was constantly tell people, this is when this is present. This is when that is present. It's a very different way than the way we teach. We teach and people say, well, what is it? How do I get rid of anxiety? That was me for two years. How do I get rid of anxiety? What does the Dhamma say about anxiety and the getting rid of anxiety? Because I have anxiety and that's got to go. And Buddha would have told me, well, when there's anxiety present, it feels like this. And when there's anxiety not present, it feels like this. That would be it. So what I think the Dhamma stands for is recognition. This learning how to discern when the arrow is lodged deep inside and when it is not. And you got to be in the present moment with mindfulness, paying attention, This having this quality to sustain your attention on what's actually happening so that you can discern what's actually going on, the presence of peace or the
2: absence of it, the presence of wisdom or the absence of it. Um, there's a, a way there was a group of monks of the Buddhas
0: who, um, they were talking to some other monks from another sect and the other monks from the other sect said, well, what makes your Siddhartha, what makes Gotama so big of a guy? I mean, our teacher teaches us about the seven factors of awakening. There is a list called the seven factors of awakening. Our teacher teaches us about that. Our teacher teaches us about the five hindrances. There is a list called the five hindrances. And the Buddhist monks didn't know what made um, their Buddha different because Buddha taught the same thing. And so they didn't really say anything. They were like, oh, well, your teacher must be great too. Kind of like get out of the way. And then they went to the Buddha and asked him, what does make you so great? Because the Buddha's monks were considered the happy ones. No matter what happened in their life, they were happy. There was a way in which they carried themselves. His nuns, his monks, they were happy. And everyone wanted to know how come they were so happy? How come they were like that? And the Buddha said, I don't teach you seven factors of awakening. I don't teach you stuff. I don't teach you information. I teach discernment. I teach the application. So the understanding of how to balance the seven factors of awakening, how to recognize the presence of the hindrances, or when they're not present. All these different lists that we have. The knowing of how these lists can help bring about peace in our lives. So this is what I think you could think of as the Dhamma. Buddha as mindfulness itself. Dhamma as this recognition. This capacity to discern that there is in fact a thorn in my heart that it may be hard to see embedded there but you can recognize that thorn in any given moment and pull it out and then lastly there is the sangha and i think of sangha more like metta more like love i remember um I did a talk one time on uh, Sangha when we were all going to leave. We were moving from um, Rodney was retiring and um, that's what it was. We weren't moving. Rodney was retiring and we were going to be basically on our own. Tim and I like uh, we figured everybody might jump ship (laughs) as soon as Rodney was gone and we wouldn't have a Sangha anymore. So I started asking all these teachers, what is Sangha? I don't want to just talk about it like a community of believers. That's that's, I mean, you could say that, but then you could say that about anything. But the Buddha said that the Sangha was the whole of the practice. And it's not just a part of the practice. It is the practice. It is necessary for there to be Sangha. And trying to understand what that is. So what I think sangha is, one of the teachers said that sangha is the dharma wrapped in love. Wrapped in um, uh, kindness, friendliness, care for one another. So this is what I think sangha is. It is this softening quality of kindness that holds everything, holds the whole practice. So you could think of it as a container like this bell holds, it holds things. So when we're together like this, we hold each other through it. You could think of it as binding like glue. So when we're together, we kind of hold each other together because we're glued we're intertwined with each other to support each other there's a recognition that we are all sharing in the same difficulties and we're all moving towards the same understanding not so much an understanding of the right way to think or be but the understanding of seeing a thorn that's lodged deep in our hearts and taking it out. And there's a degree of difficulty in doing that, that we all have to sort of um, bind together with each other so we can trust that we can do it. Or you could think of it as a, a brace, like we support each other. we got to take out this thorn that's difficult to do. And some of us have some difficult energies around. When I had all my anxiety, I used to have to show up at Sims regularly because I was not sitting at home. It was just too much panic attack. And I'd have to come to Sims and brace up against all the other people in the room to trust that I wasn't going to have a heart attack. And if I did, Somebody can call the eight car because I I thought I was going to really have a heart attack, but I had to use the sangha to brace up against it in order for me to trust that I could stay and be still with this anxiety or what I called anxiety. Or you could think of it as this holding, like accompanying each other. So like if we have some difficulty that we have to do, if we go together, walk together, we can do it. But if I got to walk by myself, I'm going to probably be scared most of the way. And I may or may not actually stay with it. But when we, if I went with my friends, yeah, I got all kinds of all kinds of courage. And so it's like this African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with another. And that's sort of what we're doing. We're kind of all accompanying each other on a path that we're going together, but everybody's on their own path at the same time. So if you take this, Quality of mindfulness, this ability that we naturally have to aim our attention at something and sustain it as Buddha, that we gradually begin to learn how to aim and sustain our attention in the present moment, cultivate this recognition, this discernment of the thorn that's embedded in our hearts and this uh capacity to take it out recognizing that that is very very difficult that we are together
2: encouraging each other to be able to do that now you can begin to see that television is not going to cut it
0: i know i am disappointed too <laughs> it's it alcohol drugs food it's not going to cut it because all of that stuff is built around somehow extending my life keeping me young and keeping my health good that none of that is going to cut it The only thing that we can really do is use this practice to steady ourselves and start paying attention to within. Nothing out there is going to help us. It is learning to close our eyes into that darkness and looking within and seeing within ourselves where that piece is and we will not be able to do it by ourselves we will not be able to do it without mindfulness and the steady kind of quality of that uh aiming and sustaining and we won't be able to do it without love and connection with each other and we won't be able to do it without recognizing cultivating a level of wisdom that we can begin to tell uh, when we're on the path and when we're not. When something is supportive and when it's not. When I'm in the present moment and when I'm not. This is what we're doing together.
2: There's one last piece I want to say before I close here. Triangles. Are
0: one of the biggest, most strongest thing uh, physical in physics, the strongest uh, connecting thing that we have in our physical world. So when you, it's, I think it's because when you have a triangle, if you push on one side, the other two sides adjust. In order to keep it as a
2: triangle. You can push and push and push on one side. It just keeps adjusting. Keeps adjusting. So when you take something like mindfulness.
0: This recognition and discernment. This this, uh, right effort to unlodge this thorn out of the heart. And you wrap it in this kindness and care. It is powerful. That is how I do not. I never had a heart attack. I'm past all my anxiety. I have way less care about whether or not I have any hindrances. I can fall asleep. Pretty much fall asleep on a, a meditation bench and won't feel one bit of shame. <laughs> I do not have that sense of, oh, I shouldn't fall asleep or I shouldn't be restless or I shouldn't have aversion. I don't have all that. I just know if I notice that falling asleep or I notice that restlessness or that aversion or desire or doubt, any of it, I know it's coming from me inside. And I have the power or the capacity to steady myself until I come to understand how to take the thorn out. I don't look outside for someone else to fix it for me. I have learned how and stayed with this practice long enough I've been in Sims for 20 years. There's been, I, we haven't been through hell in that. And so there's enough of a capacity for me to be able to deal with very difficult things. That That is what refuge is, that capacity to help you stay with a difficulty all the way through. And most of our superficial refuges, they help us in a pinch when we're stressed out. But they will not help us stay with that difficulty. They will help us get out of it. But that difficulty, it's coming right back. So I'm going to leave you with a poem here from um, William Stafford's, one of my favorite poems. Called The Way It Is. He says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread.
2: But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies
0: happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop
2: times unfolding. You just don't ever let go of the threat. So let's sit a moment here. Let these words just kind of Go out into the ether. All right. Thank you so much. Kind attention.
0: We'll see if anybody has any comments or questions or
2: anything about what we talked about. If you're here in the room and you have a comment or want to share something,
0: you pretty much have to come up to the mic here till we get into our real
1: space.
2: (laughs) But if you are online, you can raise your hand and we'll call on you from there. All right, come on. No worry. Take your time. Everybody's happy that it's not
0: them having to get up. So <laughs>
2: I'm not sure how this thing works. you just hold it. They can hear it online. We can hear you, but online can't.
1: I didn't know that I was going to cry when I came up here.
0: Oh, okay. Well, take your time.
1: Uh, there are two. I've practiced long, <laughs> over 30 years, um, long retreats, two month retreats, several. There are two moments that uh, moved me, uh, maybe the deepest,
2: and are what just another way of verbalizing what you're talking about. It, I, I- sorry you guys i'm trying to figure that out (laughs) go ahead for me
1: the the um, there was a moment of full realization of sangha as all those who have ever practiced Mm
2: -hmm.
1: all those that surround me not just here we couldn't be here our teachers couldn't be here not just if there were no buddha but if there were no people who practiced and practiced and practiced, the Sangha that goes all the way back in time, 2,600 years of people brought it to me. Me too. And the humble I
2: feeling know. in
1: me about that is, 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 for me, the definition of Sangha. I know. The second moment uh when you say to uh, to maintain, to sustain, focus, when it becomes deep enough, clear enough, unfettered enough, that the arising not just of a positive or a negative thought, thought at all, before it even comes into being, and you don't choose it, even though it's sex or food or you know all the glorious ones you want to grab on when it when actually the arising is about to happen not even happening and you don't choose it and you have freedom from the tyranny
2: of your mind Mm -hmm. that's peace i think so thank you very much
0: I hear you on that uh, connection with Sangha. I have often thought, you know, I grew up in High Point in the projects right over here in West Seattle. And sometimes I'm like, how in God's name did somebody from High Point in the projects all the way, Buddha from way over in Nepal and India, all the way over here. And, uh, I am forever grateful, so I know what you mean, yeah, so it's very, very grateful
2: for all those that held on to this practice for years Mhm uh is that emory, okay, Emory, go ahead'm mute myself now right
3: okay i got it (laughs) hi um i was really taken with just a, a piece of your talk toward the beginning when you were talking about how when buddha what what buddha really one of the things that he really realized when he became enlightened is that all of this natural phenomena is just occurring. You know, things arise and they pass away and they arise and they pass away just endlessly and how it's just the nature of things and it's completely out of our control and there's nothing to do about it. And I was just... I hadn't, I hadn't really heard it described in the way that you described it before. And it just struck me how against so much of our training and our upbringing that way of seeing life and reality is <clears throat> and how we're always, uh, you know, program to like fix things and change things and improve upon things and make things better and find a better way. And like, there's always something wrong or there's always something that can be changed. Um, so, yeah, I just, I'm wondering if you want to, talk more about that because I just I feel like I can kind of grasp it but it's so different from everything I've been taught and everything I've always done that it feels really foreign and then the other thing is if if it is in your power to relieve suffering shouldn't you do that <laughs> shouldn't you take those little steps, big steps, what have you, when you see suffering to, or when suffering arises in yourself or in others to do
2: what you can. So, um, yes, this, this idea that
0: You have to choose between control and fixing everything versus doing nothing is not, that is a ordinary mind's way of thinking about things because our ordinary mind always wants to fix everything. It always wants to tweak. I like what the Tibetans say. They say it is this urge to correct. That's what it is. It's this constant urge to correct everything, and I'm a Virgo, so I always have the urge to correct everything, (laughs) but there is a different way of being that way, the way that the Buddha is pointing to is, and probably the best example I can give to help see this more clearly is the book Braiding Sweetgrass. I can't read that book because it's too flowery. But if you listen to it on Audible, oh my God, it is the best book ever. And the reason why it's so good is because I can't remember the author's name, but it's an indigenous woman who's describing indigenous ways of being with life on all these different levels. But the difficulty we have in this Western way of thinking is this Western way of thinking is clunky. It's like this is a tree and this tree I need it for building a house. So we got to cut the tree down and I got to build a house. It's like, oh, and that worked. So now let's cut down all these trees and build a whole bunch of houses. And it just gets Massive the way we control everything. Everything. I mean, we don't realize how little we ever have to do with the elements. It's cold outside. And I didn't want to leave my house to go outside and get in my car and come here because it's toasty in my house. (laughs) But in this book, what this woman describes is not a choice between whether you cut a tree down or not. But it has to do with a respectability that you learn to live with the flow of trees. So you have a degree of respect for the tree and the tree's life, along with a degree of respect for the need for a shelter. Do you see what I'm what is, this is the way I think the Buddha would be pointing to also. It's not, do you control something? Is that what you do? As much as it is, are you living in harmony with the truth of what's happening in reality? So, how many times do we end up being more pained and suffering because we're sick? than just taking care of the body that got sick. We spend a gob of time either avoiding getting sick and stressing ourselves out about it. I think I told everyone last week that my hairdresser stopped doing hair because she was so mad that she got colon cancer and she's vegan. And her thinking is, I cannot get any kind of cancer because I'm vegan.
2: And I'm thinking, uh, I just didn't think cancer came from that, (laughs) but who knew? So
0: my point is, is that we have this way of living, thinking that the things we do and we do it religiously and we set it in stone against whatever's happening in reality because we think this is going to be the thing that I should do. So what I think Buddha was pointing to is when you begin to realize you don't have any control over all of this. Now, how can I move in harmony and in balance with the flow of life the way it is? And if you stumble upon some suffering and there's something you can do, of course, you're going to do whatever you can to relieve and alleviate that suffering. It's the nature of compassion. And if you hold the whole world in kindness, there's a way that we could all begin to move together and support each other.
2: I don't believe so much in the... Uh, I d- this is probably going to be hard for
0: some of you to take, but I don't believe in some world where we're going to end all hunger and racism and everything's going to be a-okay. I just don't believe it. I mean, we've been around for a long, long time as people, and we ain't figured it out yet. And I don't think we're the first generation to come up with wisdom on how to end racism. I think as long as we have different cultures and different races, we're going to have a lot of discrimination and racism. That quality of trying to end that out there is not so much what I follow. I'm trying to take the thorn out of my heart and I'm trying to help everybody around me. Let's just all take these thorns out. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha will be a Sangha. So think about it. Buddha found a way to liberation and then he shared it with everyone what would it mean if like Seattle insight if we all kind of like found a way to liberation and then we shared it with everybody i don't know what that would look like i have no idea but i i am not trying to be out there changing everything i am definitely going to support and help anybody that comes in my view that's suffering i would never not do that but i do that in harmony and in relationship we're trying to take the thorn out of my own
2: heart you see
0: so we're we are all trying to take these thorns out of our heart which means that we got to start noticing our own greed and hatred and our own deluded way of moving through the world all the harm we cause trying to not Um, trying to get our way and be nice about it, but still getting my way. (laughs) That's what we're trying to see that we're doing. And if we see that and we start taking the thorn out, the world I live in is vastly different than the world I grew up in. It's not that it's not violent but I have access to a degree of peace and stability that I can actually be with the difficulty without being completely dismantled and collapsing like I did for many years. You see what I'm saying? So that's what I think we are learning how to do is not to just ignore everything. And it's not, to control everything. It's learning to see the life of the moment and move in harmony with it. Excuse me, move in harmony with it.
2: Great. Thank yeah,
3: thank you. Yeah. welcome. That word harmony seems to capture a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think that willingness to, it's like you're taking the heart or you're taking the thorn out of your heart, but you're also kind of leaving it in there. You know, you're, you're, you're letting the pain maybe remain Mm -hmm. open to, you know, that, that there's a lot of inherent, inherent suffering and inherent pain as well. And that arises and that's, yeah, not fixable or controllable, but that there's almost like this, yeah, joyfulness and just being with with what is there. So, yep i I think the Buddha
0: created a society between his monastics and the communities he was with, where there was reciprocity on both sides. Mm. So if we move through the world with this understanding that whatever is given to me, I'm giving it back. So there's always this give and take and this give and take that goes in reciprocity. That reciprocity, you don't take anything or as um Thich Nhat Hanh would have said, that you don't, that you move through the world such that you don't, leave a trail. You know how when you go camping or you go backpacking and you, you know, whatever you bring in, you take out, you leave no trace. And so there's a way in which we can move through the world where we are actually in relationship with the world, in relationship. And we're not just taking, 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 ignoring, ignoring, ignoring. We're in reality with all of it. And we are receiving and giving at the same time.
2: All right. That's great. You're welcome. Well, we probably should stop unless there's a hand. No? We're good? Okay.